My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater bringing you another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. If you're just joining us, this is part two of The Life and Death of Joe Orton, a well-known British playwright in the 1960s. If you haven't listened to part one, which would have been the previous episode, I'll get to a play-by-play in a moment so you can get caught up to speed. But I would recommend going back and listening to that one, as the setup involves a lot of information about legal history regarding both censorship in theater in the UK and gay rights in the UK. But as I said, I'll get to that play-by-play in a moment, because it's about time for me to announce it, and I've been given the green light to do so. I'm so excited. I've been teasing for the last few episodes that I've got something big coming up at the Community College of Denver, heretofore referred to as CCD, and that's going to be at the end of September 2023. Here's the announcement. The panel for that live in-person episode will feature former Euripides Humanities guest Keely Anderson, who is the technical coordinator for CCD, and she will be joined by her boss and my friend, Dr. Nick Taylor, who oversees the theater department at the Community College of Denver. When I wrote to them suggesting to have an in-person episode on their campus, they let me know that CCD will be one of the stops on the tour of a one-person show called Midlife Mood Swing, written by and starring comedian and actor Mary E. Kennedy. You may have seen Mary in things like the very popular TV show Shameless. She played new Fiona in the final season. You may also have seen Mary in the 2B TV original show Tales of a Fifth Grade Robin Hood, in which she played Bernice the Lunch Lady. She also appeared in the very popular miniseries on Hulu, Welcome to Chippendales. But Mary has been doing comedy and acting all over the place for over 24 years. I'll put some links to Mary's info in the show notes for this episode as well. In any case, when it came to my live in-person episode at CCD, Mary was thrilled to have the opportunity to meet the CCD audience by being a guest on my show, since her one-person show would be playing there within the next month. So, we all had a wonderful conversation to get things going, and we're all pretty jazzed to get that episode out to you. And that's my big news. Oh! I can't wait for this live episode. So again, listeners, if you happen to be in the Denver area on Tuesday, September 26th at 4 p.m., there will be a free event that we'd love for you to attend. And of course, donations will be accepted and will go directly into helping grow Euripides Humanities. Well, 
I'm still kind of blown away by this. Okay. In any case, let's get back to today's episode, part two of the life and death of Joe Orton. But before I give my play-by-play, I have to make something of a correction. My apologies go out to any residents of the London borough of Easlington, as I mispronounced it several times on the last episode, and I know I'll do it again today. It's not Islington, it's Easlington. I hope you can forgive me for that. Joining me again is fellow podcaster Keb Pound, who runs the Stupid History Minute podcast. Keb also has a book coming out in October of this year, The Stupid History Book Volume 1, in which he collects many of his favorite episodes and sets them down in print. I'll include links in the show notes where you can pre-order the book or go listen to Keb's show. There are no punches pulled there. Each episode is literally about a minute long, and Keb calls it the most bingeable show in history. So... Here are the highlights of Joe's story from last episode before we really get into things for this episode. In the 1960s, British plays were under some strict constraints of censorship, and if a play wanted to be presented on stage, it needed to be approved by the office of Lord Chamberlain. However, lurid material was still seen on stage, but through somewhat coded language and clever staging. I mean, everybody kind of knew what was going on. At that time as well, And as had been law for literally centuries, it was not lawful to be a gay man in England, and even the suggestion that someone could be gay could result in legal action and punishment. In the midst of all this was a young writer named John Orton, who later took the pen name Joe Orton, and his lover, Kenneth Halliwell. At the end of the last episode, we found John and Kenneth in the midst of an elaborate prank they played on the Easlington Public Library in which they would take known popular works that had passed the standards of censorship, deface them with profane blurbs, which the pair would write on their Adla Tippa typewriter, they would put homoerotic imagery on the covers, etc., etc., Then they would return the books and wait in the library until some unsuspecting person would pluck the book from the shelf and be aghast by what they saw. And that's where we left you last time. Anyway, as a practicing stand-up comedian, Keb Pound adds his particular insight to this episode as he is something of a connoisseur of what is and what is not quite stupid. And without giving too much away, the ending of the story is truly flabbergasting. What a wonderful word. I get to use it so infrequently. (sighs) But without further ado, here's the second half of the life and death of Joe Orton. But the fun was going to run out at some point. You see, the library was rather small. It wasn't a big portion of town. And it didn't have a huge base of regular readers so after the library started receiving a large number of complaints paired with the frequency of john and kenneth being in the library to witness readers seeing their handiwork the librarians and local authorities started to put two and two together in interviews sydney porritt islington borough council legal clerk oh my god i mean even the title puts me to sleep seriously Sydney Port, Islington Borough Council legal clerk, said the following, and this is pieced together from a couple different interviews. I had to catch these two monkeys. I had to get results. They were a couple of darlings, make no mistake. And darling, of course, is code word for homosexual. Like, oh yeah, oh yeah. I had to get them. I'm, why? 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 Grow up. Anyway. 
While he didn't necessarily have any proof of their homosexuality, he did have suspicions that they were the vandals responsible for the hubbub based on how the books were defaced. Plus, he was given the charge of investigating the incident. Porat wrote a letter to the pair as he had their address on file. You know, I mean, they had a library card, so you had to know where to send him, you know, stuff. Sure. The letter suggested that if they were discovered to be the vandals, they could be in big trouble. Kenneth, not threatened in the slightest, but feeling as though the gauntlet had been thrown, <laughs> responded in a letter. Okay, I can't wait for this. Dear sir. I should like to know who provided you with this mysterious information, question mark. Whoever they are, they must be a liar or a moron, probably both. And the letter was signed, yours contemptuously. You gotta love the British, man. They were trying to make themselves <laughs> sound smart, you know? <laughs> yeah, and this Sydney guy, this Sydney guy, he's probably like really proud of his job. Oh, he, yeah, yes. he's like ultra proud of his job. You know, he comes from a long line of people that want to, you know, catch the darlings. Uh, so, you know, you gotta love the British. Yep. However, this response letter from Kenneth was their uh, downfall. Uh oh. As it was typed on the same Adler Tippa typewriter. The authorities matched the typeface of the letter to the typeface on the defaced dust jackets of books and now had enough evidence to make official charges. I mean, just write it in hand, man. <laughs> what, what was the charge? Oh, well, I mean, it's it's defacing a public property, basically. Okay. I mean, they're, they're books. And plus, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, they're lewd and indecent acts, some of them, you know. Who sure. fucked Benny? Well, I don't know. Yeah. The prank which had now gone on for 18 months, was now over. John Orton and Kenneth Halliwell were arrested and put on trial. Yeah. It wasn't just, here's your fine, you deface public property. No, we're, they were getting the book thrown at them. Sure. I wonder, I wonder when they went to court, if they had to wear those wigs. <laughs> well, uh, I don't think they did, but yes, the yeah, the lawyers. Yeah. Uh, what are they called? The barristers. The barristers. Barristers had to, yes, yeah. and the judge. The judge. Yeah, Monty Python does that great sketch about the poofy judges. Oh sure, and oh, it's so funny. Like they, you know, they walk down a hall very austerely in their robes and the the powdered wigs, and then they get to the end of a hall and there's a wardrobe. And they just start talking like the cattiest gay men you'd ever think about. Just talking, sure. talking trash on how people were dressed in court and everything. And, you know, letting their hair out of the wig and everything. And then one of them unzips his robe and he's only wearing lingerie. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, um, that's so perfect. What a statement. What a statement. Do you, do you know what the House of Commons is? Well, yeah, it's one of the two houses of the parliament, right? Right, right, right. Well, it's yeah. kind of like the U.S. House of Representatives, except if everybody were on meth, and <laughs> and uh, and that the head guy there wears the wig. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's it's all uh, theater. I mean, uh, oh, here's, yeah. Here, I'm gonna tell you uh, something you already know. Politics, okay. no matter no matter where, United States, Britain, you know, Jakarta. Um, it's all, <laughs> it's all Hollywood for ugly people. That's all it is. <laughs> I couldn't make it in pictures. I'll make it in the Capitol. I love right. it. I couldn't make it on TV. So I'll just go be president. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Says a lot for Bill Clinton. Yeah, um, Ooh, yeah, boom. I love that guy. I love that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, oh, it's fun. 
In court, it was never suggested that John and Kenneth were lovers. Rather, they were either described as friends or roommates. But the outcome of the trial seemed to indicate that the authorities knew otherwise. Both men were convicted, and rather than pay fines, they were sentenced to six months in prison, each to be incarcerated at separate prisons for defacing library books. Six months. Six months. Right. You sit in there and you think about what you did. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell yeah. me it's just about library books. Mm-hmm. Right. No, it's yeah. not. It's, I mean, yeah. Yeah. OJ killed two people. He didn't do it that. Um, no, no. Yeah. But if he did, yeah, he'll write a great book about it. Uh, I mean, he, he was acquitted by a jury of his, you know, peers. Peers. You know, so, mm-hmm. so far yeah. be it for me to make fun of him, but I will. No, I will. right. I will. I will. <laughs> Why not? So years later in interviews, Orton had this to say about why they did the whole caper in the first place. I was enraged that there were so many rubbishy novels and rubbishy books. Libraries might as well not exist. Yeah. (laughs) So great. (laughs) And here he's trying to make this vibrant, interesting, and at the same time, lascivious content. But I mean for a purpose like it's sure. making people think about what's going on behind closed doors it's calling them out yeah yeah the thing about that is like you know i've talked about it on this show a few times you know when i direct plays i i really focus on stage intimacy training so people who are doing uncomfortable things with other people uh or very intimate things with other people can still feel comfortable doing it and do it safely right. you know i mean it was for so long keb and people still hold this opinion that like if you're reading in a script and it says, okay, and these two characters kiss, you get to that scene of rehearsal and the director says, all right, and go for it. Yeah. And you're like, I don't really know this person. And I, we've got to make this a believable, like passionate kiss, or maybe there's something behind this kiss. And, and there was never discussed uh, like, how, how do you actually do something like this? And it just makes me think like, you know, plays and books and movies are not about the dull points in a person's life. They're not about when somebody sits in the accountant's office and waits his turn to get his taxes paid and goes, woohoo, I got my refund. It's not about that. It's about when, when relationships are breaking up or people are confronting their relatives or, or or they're facing huge things. It's about these big things. So to censor some of that stuff seems really stupid. Censorship by definition is stupid. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So while in prison, both John Orton and Kenneth Hallowell had intended to use the time to focus on their on improving their writing. For John, this proved incredibly fruitful as he emerged from prison with something of an enhanced perspective on the world and how to make his voice heard in UK theater. And here's a quote from his time in prison. Before, I had been vaguely conscious of something rotten somewhere and prison crystallized this. Like, wow, that's, yeah, you do a little time, then yeah, I can see where you're like, okay, there are flaws in the system and I want to, yeah, I want to at least address them. Yeah, I mean, putting somebody in jail for six months for defacing a couple of books. If everybody's like, yeah, that's okay, you know, you shouldn't put that stuff in there, you know? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, well, to be fair, I think it was something like 72 books, so maybe... <laughs> Maybe it was appropriate. Okay. Can this you is imagine the outcry <laughs> if they tried to do that to somebody now? 
You know, oh my they, God, they, they'd be no. like, you, you know, that's freedom of the press. And that's, yeah. you know, you know, they're allowed to deface somebody else's work, you know, because I could kind of see like both sides of it. They were they were kind of, you know, proving their point. But, you know, the people who wrote the books, I mean, they didn't ask for that. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. No, I can see that. But yeah, I can see both sides. But can you imagine if that happened now? There'd be like protest after protest after protest. It would be chaos. Yeah. It would be absolute chaos. Now. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 that's funny. Like you know, you're a stand-up comedian. Yeah, and and I we've talked about that on this show before of how like stand-up is really the forum where some of those really big, hard-hitting topics can be addressed. I I, I address them nightly. Yeah, and <laughs> you know. and and we talk about these things, and you know, you make people laugh at them, but they also, if the comedy's done well, in my opinion, they're also mm-hmm. thinking about them a little bit right. by the time they're done. Right. You know, they're going, yeah, I mean, you know, every comic has cut his teeth on uh, uh, airplane jokes and airport jokes and all that. But, you know, yeah. I mean, sometimes you'll get to a point where it's like, yeah, it really seems funny that there is a caste system to how we are seated. Right. <laughs> and it makes you look at things a little bit bigger, you know? I, I think along with the censorship line, what what, what you were, were saying, I think it's the last kind of bastion of free speech that yeah. there is uh, I would even, I would even throw this medium podcasting into it because um, you know there there there's no one really to tell us you know what we can and can't say you know right I mean, and right. there are people who can try you know to you know cancel you but that only works if uh, the person that you're trying to cancel cares you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it really, really doesn't. I mean, I, I talk a lot. I make a lot of religious jokes because I want to point out to people the absurdity of it. And yeah. that is yeah. all that this. And if somebody tried to censor that, I would be like, you know, you're trying to hide something that right. I, 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 I'm, you know, bringing to light. I often make the joke. Do you know who you know what Shamu is, right? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Like the like the, the, the Sea World whale. whale. Yeah. Well, the whale killed somebody. You know, and yeah. then they, they didn't kill the whale. They just they just they just moved it to like Seattle, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and I was like, that's that's the same thing as they do with the Catholic priests. You know, they ah, just you know, they, just, they yeah. just move them. You know, yeah. and so and, and that I didn't curse or anything during no. that whole whole section of a joke. You wouldn't imagine the people that have a problem with me saying that. Oh and I'm just God. pointing out things that are facts that actually happen. Facts, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not making this up or making fun of anything. I'm I'm putting out facts because all comedy is is life exaggerated. That's yes. all it is. Yes, and I would say to a similar degree, that's theater as well. Right. Theater is a depiction of life through somebody's eyes. Yeah. You, you know, and I was going to ask you this. I know, I know that you directed a lot. And I was going to ask you this. When I was 18, I was in a uh, drama troupe called uh, Southside Center for the Arts here in Jacksonville. We were putting on a production of My Fair Lady. <laughs> and I was so fortunate as to get the part of Henry Higgins. Oh. Now, in, in that realm again 18 in that realm i used to make fun of people who took acting again i don't take much seriously so <laughs> uh, i used to make fun of people who took acting like regular seriously and, and one thing that i i would say listen to them say would be like they'd be getting ready for a character and getting a character and some people are like 
you know, they say go, and then they're in character. And some people are like in character the whole time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and so they would they would use this term. And I never really got this term until I did Henry Higgins. They said, Well, what is his motivation? You know, and I had read <laughs> yeah, okay. and I had read Pygmalion, right? So I oh. knew I knew that Henry Higgins, for lack of a better term, was an asshole. You know, yes. I, I I knew that he was a jerk. Yeah. You know, so um, Shaw but, really but, but intended that. <laughs> why was he that? And I didn't really. Ah. I, why would people care? Well, you have to care, and that makes you a better performer. You know, yeah. People who people who are passionate about performing in whatever world, whether it's you know acting, movies, music, um, you know, stand-up podcasting. You know, it's it's all it's all the same thing. People who are passionate about entertaining people. Yeah. You know, need to need to find um, that, and 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 even now when I learned it, I was watching an interview with Tom Cruise, and he was like, "Well, I got to find my mo- my motivation behind that." And I was like, I, mm-hmm. I always chuckle. I was like, I used to make fun of people who said that. You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's a major part of just about every modern or contemporary acting uh, technique. Is why are you doing what you're doing? Right. And these guys were doing what they were doing to kind of point out what was wrong. Yes, exactly. They're looking at all of these examples of people whose stuff is massively popular in a highly censored world. So you have these dramatists who are writing plays that are closed room whodunits that are the crux of the whole thing is the stupid detective figured out who did it based on the timetables of trains that pass through town. And you're like, oh, my God. That is so boring. That is so boring. Just stop it. And then you have little dinky comedy after little dinky comedy and nothing gets addressed. Nothing gets solved. Nothing gets fixed. Nothing gets talked about. And then we'll just continue doing Shakespeare ad infinitum. And maybe it will address some problems we're talking about today or not. Here's these two guys. They do this thing. And like you were saying, yeah, those authors didn't ask for it. But you know what? They also capitulated to a system where they just turn out dreck and get money. Sure. So... On one hand, yeah, it was a silly, stupid prank, but also it was kind of the origin of where John Orton went after this. So, like I said, his time in prison really helped him figure out where he wanted to go, or at least kind of focused him in a direction. He came out like really, really charged and encouraged. Kenneth Halliwell, however, did not find the same initiative. Instead, Kenneth went into prison a sensual and confident man but left prison in a state of utter depression. Mm. Uh-huh. So <laughs> the two still lived together afterwards, though, and still attempted to get their works published. However, their release only damaged their local reputations and made them utterly destitute. They lost the jobs they'd had six months earlier, and so they had no fluid income, and the court costs had pretty much drained their savings. Right. Hallowell actually attempted to slit his wrists within a year of being released. Mm. So, yeah, Mm. it it got bad. John, however, seemed to use this dismay as further impetus to write. In 1963, John Orton sold a radio play to the BBC called The Ruffian on the Stair. And this caught the attentions of Terrence Radigan, who we talked about earlier, who, you know, wrote those plays about homosexual relationships, but just translated them into heterosexual relationships. We're still talking about the same issues. It's just through a different lens. Right. 
And Terence Radigan saw great potential in John's works as he seemed to challenge the invisible curtain of purity drawn across most London stages. John's play Entertaining Mr. Sloan was the next to catch attention as it made its way across publishers and agents' desks. Entertaining Mr. Sloan contains a lot of themes, including internal family strife, inappropriate sexual relations, murder, and extorting people into servitude, both of labor and of sexual nature. All of this is in a comedy. Sounds like a good one. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Like I'm like, okay, I, I would love to see this. Yeah. And it was perhaps because of its lurid content that still could possibly get past censors, the play convinced this legendary agent, Peggy Ramsey, to agree to represent John Orton and get his place to the stage. She saw flaws in entertaining Mr. Sloan, so she gave John suggestions on how to improve the script. But she also suggested that he go by a stage name. John Orton sounds just too similar to another popular playwright at the time, one of what has come to be known as the angry young men, John Osborne, most well known for his play Look Back in Anger. And I saw a great taped version of that with Kenneth Branagh in it years ago. Jeez, it was good. And yeah, they were all very angry young men in those plays. Sure. And thus, John Orton became Joe Orton. And within the next few years, his name was said by many critics to be the next Oscar Wilde. So, from now on, he's Joe. So, now we have Joe Orton. And you'll hear just how quickly Joe caught the hearts and minds of the theater world. And how about six months in prison for defacing library books? Sorry, but I just don't think they had the public's best interest in mind with that move. Regardless, it does really work out for Joe, as you'll soon hear. But it's all going to end rather suddenly. I won't say too much more. But I will say this. I certainly hope you're enjoying the show. If you're enjoying my guest, Keb Pound, I encourage you to check out his show, The Stupid History Minute, or to buy his book, The Stupid History Book Volume 1. And furthermore, if you like his show or mine, please give us a review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps our shows out a lot. But let's get back to the thrilling conclusion of the life and death of Joe Orton. Joe's star rose quickly. Entertaining Mr. Sloan premiered in 1964 and got middling to poor reviews, but his ingenuity and wit is what caught the attention of many. The subversive themes, without flat-out putting lewdness and shocking material directly in front of the audience, all told through a lens of charming and naughty wit. This is what Joe Orton came to be known for, very similar to the methods with which he and his partner would deface library books just a few years before. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just love it. I, I just love it. Like, I remember... I've talked about it a few times, but, uh, you know, the play Noises Off, where it, you know, it's a it's it's a backstage comedy all based around a British sex farce. Sure. And the first time I did it, I did it with high school students and all the high school students were like, wow, this is really racy material. I'm like, well, let me ask you. Yes, it's all based around a sex farce. Does anybody on stage, are they ever seen kissing or in the middle of an act? And they all thought about it. They went, no, said, okay alcohol use okay you're in high school you don't want people to see you using alcohol on stage is that ever seen no say so you do refer to perhaps we should just open the have one glass of champagne champagne bottles never opened 
So do they see it? No. We're letting the audience fill in that extra little dirty part in their mind. Sure. <laughs> they're not seeing you do it, but they're thinking it. So, so here's Joe Orton doing that to people. And, and they're just going, ooh, this is so naughty. They don't see anything. Right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So. In 1965, Joe's play Loot, L-O-O-T, saw much more success. Loot was something of satirizing detective dramas, which were pretty popular in Britain at the time. Okay. But very much as he had done with the library books, in Loot, Orton seemed to start with a perfectly acceptable whodunit about a heist, but injected a lot of innuendos, coded inappropriate content, all with something of a wink to the audience that both the playwright and the crowd were having a massively good time being naughty. <laughs> that's awesome. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> they're all just like, they, it, they're in on a joke. Yeah. And, and the censors can't say, but this is lewd. It's like, uh, where? Where is it lewd? Yeah. Show me where it's lewd. Hmm. <laughs> Humor me with specifics. Yeah. <laughs> Joe Orton was now a household name by 1965. Mm -hmm. And with solid cash flow, Orton would take some pretty lavish vacations with his partner, Kenneth Hallowell. However, this fame and notoriety did not fare well for their relationship, despite Orton basically providing the life they wanted to have so badly. Single person is doing it all on his own. Sure. Kenneth was often suspicious of Orton's potential for philandering but he had good reason to feel that way. <laughs> Orton was pretty open about his predilection for not just men, but young men. Gotcha. Once the Sexual Offenses Act became law in 1967, Joe complained about the law. Quote, It's only legal over 21. I like boys of 15. <laughs> There's another term for that, Joe. Uh yeah, yeah. As I was reading through this, I mean, the the one story I read the whole thing, I'm like, Joe's the hero of this story. And then I came across that. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. No, <laughs> no. Not anymore. Yeah. yeah. Oh, got, yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. we're on the we're on the uh, we're on the screw Joe train now. <laughs> yeah, right. Know? However, while Joe was enjoying the spotlight, Kenneth's depression seemed to deepen and deepen. And unfortunately, he saw Joe as the primary cause of it. On the other hand, he loved Joe madly. Sounds to me he might have been a little jealous. Uh, uh, just a bit, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just a tad. I mean, they both wanted to be writers, and one of them just happened to pop, you know? Right. And instead of being happy for your partner, you're just like, well, all this fame is going right to your head. Right. During all of Joe's success, Hallowell had been taking copious amounts of purple hearts, which are described as a combined amphetamine barbiturate marketed as an antidepressant to tired housewives. Quaaludes? Yeah, basically. Yeah. So jealousy on top of quaaludes, uh, on top of depression, on top of suicidal tendencies. Uh, we don't have a happy Kenneth here. As well, that's like, yeah, that's like the basis for basically every uh, serial killer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it really is. Hallowell would act out erratically in public, often in front of the couple's friends. Those same friends would later indicate that Joe wanted to leave Hallowell because of this behavior. Plus, Joe was pretty sexually active outside the relationship anyway. Uh, 
Yeah, I'm sure he was. Uh huh. Here we go. More on the Screw Joe train. He, yeah. <laughs> quite literally, he had a consistent craving for cottaging, which my source described as sexual encounters with strangers in public bathrooms. Because that's safe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, see, and that. Oh God, I could go. I could go into it. Like, you know, the whole AIDS epidemic in this country. Right. Uh, you know got worse and worse because you have very vulnerable people who are basically being told that they don't exist. And there might be the people who are legitimately like just looking for someone to care about and, and love and everything. And then there are people who are just like, you know, I haven't gotten on, on for a long time because I'm positive. Sure. And, and it just, oh, okay. Well, anyway, uh, happy thoughts. <laughs> now the Odd thing was that both Joe Orton and Kenneth Hallowell seemed to know how they felt about each other, but still continued living as a couple, as though there might be hope that this would all work out. I mean, they had been together for years, partners in crime, both literally and figuratively. Orton even came up with a plan to have separate houses, and he would come to visit Kenneth often rather than living with him full time. Now, that never came to fruition, but he proposed it and it never would have worked. Oh boy, here we go, Kev. Uh, on August 6th, 1967, a chauffeur came to the door of Orton and Hallowell's Victorian home in Islington. He was to pick up Joe Orton and drive him to a movie studio. Orton was to begin talks for writing a screenplay for a new Beatles movie. Nice. Right? He had, that's nice. how that's how big this guy was at that right. time. Like, you know, I, I don't know, 1967, I can't remember what movies might have come before then. But, you know, you're looking at help. You're looking at I want to hold your hand, you know. Oh, just movies in general. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's Lawrence of Arabia type. Right. Yeah, that's huge. Time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the chauffeur is there. No one comes to the door. Upon inspecting the home, the chauffeur found Joe Orton and Kenneth Hallowell dead in their bed. The night before, Kenneth Hallowell bludgeoned Joe Orton to death with a hammer, striking him on the head multiple times while he slept. Kenneth hit Joe so many times that blood was splattered all over Joe's chest and the brain matter was all over the wall behind the bed. Tasty. Uh-huh. Joe was found only in his pajama top and the hammer rested on his chest under his clasped hands, something like an ancient Egyptian memorial. Wow. What were, you, what were you saying about serial killer? Yeah. Hallowell was found completely nude. He had taken 22 Nembutal pills, which are barbiturates, which he had mm -hmm. slurped. He had slurped them down with grapefruit juice. His body was laying beside Joe Orton's smeared with Orton's blood. And of significant note, Hallowell was not wearing his signature toupee, having gone bald very early in adulthood. Probably <laughs> added to it. That he had to wear a toupee. Yeah. Just go. And, and the funny thing about that was, I think Joe bought it for him. Yeah. <laughs> just go bald, dude. Just, uh, yeah. Just at, at some point, you just got to be like, look, it's over. It's you over. Know? I mean, it's over. <laughs> just shave the head. Hair loss doesn't run in my family. But if mm -hmm. it did, if it did, it just, just go. Dude, it's just, just go it's for just, it. Yeah. It's like I, 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 I tell people all the time, they're like, uh, why don't you work out? I said, at some point, man, I just got to give it up that I'm fat. 
I'm cool <laughs> with that. I'm good. I'm good with being fat. That's that's who I am. Yeah, you know what? All right. I am comfortable in my skin. The fact that I have a lot more than you, you know, I mean. <laughs> yep. I like it. I like it. As far as intent for this uh, murder-suicide, Hallowell left a note on Orton's diary that said it would all be explained by reading the diary. But the last week of Orton's life was not chronicled there. It's Mm -hmm. suspected that Hallowell may have discovered Orton's infidelity by reading the diary. Sure. One source I had described the scene this way. It was in a macabre, strange way, a very Orton-esque way to go. A mixture of sex and violence laced with irony. The one thing missing was his trademark wit. There was nothing funny in the fact or manner of his death. There is nothing funny about that. Trust me, I'm I'm searching. Yeah, I was like, uh, okay, come on, come on, stand up, let's go. Yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing. nothing (laughs) So these two gay guys, they just hate each other, and uh, one of them beats the other one to death with a hammer. Okay, good night, folks. (laughs) Tip your waiter. (laughs) Joe Orton was 34 when he died. Kenneth Hallowell was 41. Posthumously, Orton's play Funeral Games premiered in 1968, followed by What the Butler Saw in 1969, and they were huge hits. Orton's plays are still redone all over the world, and despite the shocking nature of his demise, in the theater world, Orton is credited as a new voice in comedy, inspiring many new voices to come, especially in light of the Theaters Act of 1968, which effectively removed censorship from the British stage. Wow. And that, Keb, is the yeah. story of the life and death of Joe Orton. I, I, I don't know whether to like him or not. I know, you know? Right? I mean, I, you know, I mean, he did a lot for uh, for censorship, but he, right, kind of, a, kind of a dickhead, you know. I mean, you know, I mean, that's just it. Like, what do they say? Never meet your heroes. Yeah, you know, and then like uh, the Kenneth guy. I mean, uh, whoo, you know, I mean, hell hath no fury, right? <laughs> Well, I mean, it sounded like I don't want to suggest that it sounded predatory, but yeah, it seemed like he was combing. It's a burning bed situation. You know, he caught the dude cheating. Right. Right. Yeah. So what do you do? Yeah. If I can't have you, no one will. Boom. You're dead. Right. And you're the source of all of this anyway. Right. But really, they could have just been like, all right, we need to go our separate ways. They, they they could have. But you know as well as I do that in when people make emotional decisions, they make irrational decisions. Yes. Follow yes, me? they do. Yep, so, I do. So if you're, you know, I hate to lean on the crime of passion, you mm-hmm. know, but but the scene, as you described, uh, indicates that it was, it was pretty thought out. <laughs> it was pretty <laughs> yeah. premeditated. Yeah. It yeah. was pretty thought out. So, uh, and, and it sounds like Joe Orton didn't put up a fight. So he was probably completely asleep. And then Kenneth Hallowell came in and wrapped him a good one with the hammer to the point where it probably either knocked him out or killed him. Right. And then he didn't stop. Yeah. Uh, um, that sucks. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. It, it, uh, 
I, I I don't know how to feel about Joe here. I I I could have brought the question up like, uh, who's your favorite artist that was cut down before they maybe even they had their prime? And I'm you know like immediately I'm thinking of people like uh, Kurt Cobain and River Phoenix. Yeah, I mean you could go with Selena. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, people mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah, who were really starting to get big, and then unfortunately, like they're done now. That would have been John Candy. Oh, dude. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Him or, him or Chris Farley. Yeah. Or Mitch yeah. Hedberg. Mitch Hedberg's a good one. Oh, Mitch Hedberg. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. I still laugh at him just outstandingly. Just the weird ideas that that guy would come up with. I once had a director who's like, you can't listen to that and not tell me that he wrote any of those jokes sober. No. he. <laughs> it, you know what's funny is he didn't really drink. He smoked a lot of weed. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. a lot and when i say a lot um a lot yeah <laughs> so but i'll tell you this comics look at the world differently yeah you know, I, I mean they, we really do so but for him it will it wasn't just so much his subject matter do you know who howie mandel is oh yeah 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 howie mandel is probably one of the smartest teachers of comedy and mm-hmm. he has a saying that says comics say funny things, but comedians say things funny, you know? And that oh, okay. Mitch Hedberg, Mitch Hedberg mm-hmm. has a joke about ducks and it mm-hmm. says, um, I, I have found that a duck's opinion on me is based on how much bread I have. <laughs> now <laughs> that's not something that I could pull off, but the way he tells it, mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, Mitch Hedberg's a one-liner guy. The way he told it was so good, and, and, yeah. and that's what Howie Mandel's talking about. He he just doesn't say funny things; he says things funny. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so well, and that's that's kind of uh, the impression I get from Joe's writing and his stance on 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 just kind of taking on the man in a very subtle but very effective fashion. Sure. And and I don't know how how responsible he was for getting the theaters act passed probably not much i mean it it did come about uh within a year of his death yeah. so you know i don't know i think i think there was a lot of that at the time though where people are just like look can we just say what we want to say because we're already saying it everybody's hearing it we can we just right. do it without coded language and and all the all of this unnecessary nonsense. I mean, the flip side of that coin is the '70s came after that, and there was some really weird stuff that went on on stage in the '70s where we're like, "Wow, can we just tone it down a bit, guys?" Mm-hmm. So you know, I mean, it was literally centuries of pent up oppression <laughs> happened to all come out at once. Sure, somebody somebody took their foot off the garden hose. <laughs> sure, but yeah, there we go, Joe Orton. What do you think? Yeah. I I I I don't know what to think. He's kind of a dickhead, but <laughs> then again, you know. Then again, mm-hmm. he uh he, he was pretty cool. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So we'll just leave it at this. May he rest in peace. There we go. Thank you, Joe, for those wonderful works that you did, and uh, yeah. stay out of public bathrooms. <laughs> yeah, stay out of jail. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and nothing good happens in jail. I mean, so I've heard. You yeah, know? I wouldn't know myself. Yeah. So. <laughs>
see. I told you that you wouldn't see that ending coming, but I can't say I really see a hero in this one, rather a mingling of a couple of villains. Regardless, we got some truly amazing work out of Joe, and I would strongly encourage you to go see any Joe Orton play that comes at you. My many thanks again to my guest, Keb Pound. Hope you go listen to The Stupid History Minute or buy his book, The Stupid History Book Volume 1. You won't be disappointed. And I'll just try to keep down my excitement for having a great panel on my show at the Community College of Denver in the upcoming weeks, including fabulous actor-comedian Mary E. Kennedy. For now, I'll sign off. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater, ending this episode of Euripides Amenities. Another episode will be in your ears in another two weeks, and I will see you at intermission. <laughs>